in general in our view about life. And last week we preached the message, is life really worth living? And somebody said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. And Solomon's life was not quiet. It was desperation, but it wasn't quiet. He wrote it down and God had inspired him to write it down. And so it's in the Bible today. So we can see Solomon's quiet desperation on full display. And so in our series of messages about life, we, uh, we want to know today, we're going to ask this question, is life just a circular maze? Is life a circular maze? I saw a, a cartoon where, you know, at this time of year they have these cornfields and the maze cut through those stalks of corn where it's difficult to get from one place to the other and you hit dead ends and all that. I saw uh, one of those corn mazes. It had one stalk of corn in the middle of the field. And it said a corn maze, corn maze for old people. <laughs> now, I'm old, so I can tell that, right? <laughs> Life can be a maze. Let's think about some things. As Solomon wrote this book under the inspiration of God, he seems to be saying the same old things just happen over and over and over. It's a monotonous circuit. Round and round, same old stuff. And those monotonous circuits are even forgotten. And so are the people living in these circuits. People live and die. And Solomon said, man, they're forgotten. Nobody remembers them anymore. I was in the No Bottom Graveyard last year and saw some tombstones in there where my family came from up in Izzard County. And uh, I saw a lot of my grandfathers, forefathers, great-grandfathers, great-great-grandfathers, tombstones in that cemetery. And I remember looking at those tombstones and I thought, I wonder who they really were. I know they're related to me, but I wonder, did they live in a log cabin? Did they sit in the wintertime and drink coffee and warm their hands by an old fireplace? Did they go out and plow fields and plant corn, cotton stuff in the summertime? What were they like? What was that man like? What was his wife like? What were their kids like? They're my relative, but I know nothing about them. And had it not been for looking at those tombstones in the cemetery, they would have been totally forgotten. And that's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying the people, people come and go. <laughs> Nobody cares. That seems to summarize the frustrations of Solomon as he writes these things down in the book. Warren Wiersbe says, Solomon, when observing life under the sun, saw it as living life in circles. Today is our wedding anniversary. Is this, today is your wedding anniversary, is it? Yesterday. Uh, anybody else got a wedding anniversary today or this weekend? My wife and I are celebrating 47 years of being married. <clears throat> we still like each other. But that first winter of being married, <laughs> that first winter we were married, <laughs> it was a bad winter. We don't have a lot of bad winters, real bad winters in Arkansas, but this was a particularly bad winter. The winter of 76 and 77, man, there was snow and ice and cold. And I worked construction in those days. And when the weather was like that, there was no construction work going on. So we were, 
We were broke and hungry. I did a lot of rabbit hunting that winter. <laughs> we ate a lot of rabbit because the rabbits were something I knew how to hunt. You could go out and walk up a, a rabbit. That's what my dad called it, walking them up. You'd find a brush pile, and those rabbits would be huddled up under the brush pile trying to stay warm. And when you'd kick that brush pile, that rabbit would run out. And he'd go up this way and circle, and he'd make a big circle, maybe an acre. But he would always come back to the very same spot where he started. Did you know that? Rabbits run in a circle. And so if I didn't get him when he came out of the brush pile, I got another shot at him when he came back because they live in circles. Rabbits' lives are virtually lived in circles. And people seem to live life, according to Solomon, in circles. <coughs> Let's read our text and see what he says. Beginning in verse number 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse number 4. <coughs> he says, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goes, goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new? It hath been already of old time which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of the things that are to come with those that shall come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. I've seen all the, all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate. I have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Father, I pray that you'd bless us as we go into this passage this morning. And as we look into Solomon's words, Lord, we understand that you gave him the wherewithal to write these down for our benefit and our understanding. Lord, help us to see the futility of living life under the sun and the victory that we can have by living 
on a heavenly plane. I pray that you'd bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen. In today's message we ask, is life just a circuit? Is it just a circular maze? We wander here, wander there. We don't seem to know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, and there seems to be some new things under the, under the sun, but then we come that circuit, and we come right back where we started from, and everything just seems like, well, now I've got to do it all over again. Wasn't worth it the first time. The Sabibor Nazi concentration camp was set in the scenic woods near the Bug River that divides Russia and Poland. And the natural beauty of the woods in that area is in stark contrast to the stench and the torture and the death and the horror that existed in that camp within those woods in World War II. Every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl that were herded into that camp were herded there to be exterminated in gas chambers or shot. On October 14, 1943, Jewish laborers within that camp decided there's no use just standing here and being executed and gassed to death like the rest that have gone before us. We've got to do something. And so there was an uprising. The Jewish slaves decided to fight back, even though they were in a guarded prison camp. By the way, uh, most of those guards were Ukrainian POWs who had been converted over to the Nazis in order to save their own lives. And they outnumbered actually the, the Germans in that camp. But this was definitely a Nazi death camp. But then this uprising, the Jewish slaves took picks and shovels and used them as weapons against those guards. And they made their way to the barbed wire fence and they attacked with those shovels and axes, pickaxes, they attacked the guards and stole their guns, their pistols, their rifles, and they shot their way in over to that fence, cut the fence, and began to climb through that fence to head for the forest. There was young, one young boy by the name of Thomas Blatt, or he was known as Toivy in his native Poland. He was only 15 years old when he and his family went to that death camp, and his parents were executed immediately but they allowed him to live for a while because he was young enough and strong enough he would make a good slave. And so he was in the number, there was about 700 that had planned this escape. 300 of them got through the fence and got out of the death camp. Toivy was trampled as, he, as the rest of the crowd rushed through to get through the fence and into the woods. Toivy was trampled and left behind, but he got to his feet and got out of there. He finally made it. And uh, he and two of his companions set off into a nightmare journey into those deep woods to try to escape the Nazis. And as they had made it way into the dense forest, they would travel by night through heavy brush. I mean, it was thick, dense, dense forest. And daytime, they would hide under the brush and try to escape the Nazi 
guards that were searching for them. And as they began to travel, they were making their way deeper into the forest, but they didn't really know which way they were going. They didn't know north from south and east from west. And what they really needed, because these boys were city boys, they didn't know about the outdoors. They couldn't read the stars and, and uh, the signs of the forest of which way was which. And so they were trying to find their way around. What they really needed was a guide who could get them out of that forest. After about four days traveling at night, they could see the, the silhouette of a building against the sky in the background. They made their way closer and closer, and they were thinking, boy, we've got some hope. Maybe this will be an old farmhouse. Maybe it'll be some uh, woodsman who will be able to guide us out of this place so we can escape the Nazis. And as they got closer and closer, they see that building, and it turned out it was the, the tower of the Nazi death camp. They had gone in a big circle because they didn't know where they were going, and they came right back where they started. Well, they eased their way back into the forest. Toivy and his two friends. Toivy was the only one that made it out alive to tell this story. Do you ever feel like Toivy? <laughs> Life is rough and tough, desperate. And you end up going in a circle and you're right back where you started again. All over again. This is what Solomon wrote down, what he had been thinking. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, man, I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried the other thing. And back, I'm back where I started. I didn't find what I was looking for. The Sioux religious leader by the name of Black Elk said everything in life is done in circles. It's a circle from childhood to childhood. You're born into the world as a little helpless baby and about the time you get old enough to go out of the world, you're kind of back in the same shape again. Solomon says that's kind of the way it is in life. As best I can tell, I've tried everything and it seems like everything just brings me back in full circle where I started. Now this cycle, this cyclical view of life bothered Solomon. It was a great burden. And it seemed like life is something over which we have no control. That's what Solomon said. He said, man, everything that's happened seems like it's just all laid out and we don't have any choice. It just happens to us and we don't have any control over anything. Season after season, it's just repeated. Century after century. The same thing happens. And so Solomon pondered these questions. Is life worth living? I mean, are we just going in circles? And so he pondered this. He was deflated, depressed, and frustrated. And he said, nothing is changed, verses 4 through 7. And nothing is new, verses 8 through 11. And nothing is understood, verses 12 through 18. Solomon was just done. He couldn't figure it out. His life worth living. His life just a circular maze. Well, he said nothing has changed. Look at verses 4 through 7 uh, again. And he approached this problem. Uh, nothing has changed. He approached this problem as kind of like a scientist 
He, uh, first he mentions the earth in verse number four. He says, one generation passeth away and another generation cometh, but the, the earth abideth forever. I mean, if, if anything is steady, you'd think, must be the earth. I mean, that's what Solomon thought. I mean, he, he says the baby's born, he grows up and gets old and he dies. And that just happens over and over again. One generation comes and another one shows up on the scene when he's gone. And it just repeats itself over and over. But the earth abideth. Well, if there's anything that ought to be solid and stationary, you'd think it was the earth. And that's the way Solomon saw it. Did you ever hear anybody say the words... Uh, well, I know this just as sure as the world, as sure as the world, the world seems to be sure, the, sure, the world seems to be solid and unchanging. We live on it and we perish, but the world stays behind. That's what Solomon's saying. Then in verse number five, he sees it by comparing to the sun. He said, the sun also ariseth and the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose. He said, man, you watch and the sun comes up over there and you work a while during the day and it's over there. And it just kind of disappears and runs around and shows up again over in the east. Same old thing, day after day. Get up in the morning, put on your clothes, go to work, come home, watch a little TV, go to bed, get up the next morning and do it all over again until you die. Is that all life is? Is that all life is? Is it just repeated and we can't do anything about it. And then he says, as a scientist, he's looking at it from the point of the wind. In verse number 6, he says, The wind goeth towards the south and turneth unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. So he's a meteorologist, right? <laughs> right, Brother Paul? He says, man, the wind... It, the jet stream comes down from the northwest. It sweeps down through Arkansas and goes back up towards Maine, New England, and Maine up that way, disappears, and then here it comes again out of the northwest. It just goes round and round and round in a circuit. Is that all life is? Just a wind that blows the same old circles all the time? And then he compares it to the sea. In verse number 7, he says, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come and thither they return again. Amen. The rivers are all running to the sea but the sea doesn't get full. There's still room. So he kind of recognizing in a scientific fashion that that water gets out in the sea, it evaporates, goes up, the wind carries it back up there where it started from and it rains, the vapor turns to rain and falls at the head of the river and it runs down the river again, back to the sea, back up into the sky, back up to the head of the river, and around it goes. Is this all life is, like a river? We, uh, we've looked at the head of the Arkansas River uh, near Leadville, Colorado, a couple of times. and you can, you can walk down to the Colorado River, its headwaters. You can walk down there and step across the Arkansas River. That's how little it is. When it gets to Arkansas and empties into the big river, it's pretty wide there. But that water eventually ends up in the ocean. It evaporates. It goes back up there to Colorado and comes down that river again. Is this all life is? Or we're just sitting watching things 
circulate? Are we in a circular maze? Is life that dull and that boring? And do we have no control over it? Is that why we're depressed? And is that why we're always looking for something new? In the Twilight Zone. Anybody ever watched the Twilight Zone episodes? You like those? I, I still like the old shows like Twilight Zone. Three Stooges is my favorite, but the Twilight Zone is a good one. <laughs> the Twilight Zone, there was a, a pilot and his crew in a plane that somehow went through a time warp, and they were stuck in time. I mean, they could look down and they could see prehistoric animals and they're out of their time, and they're stuck there, and they keep going through another, t- another phase of the earth and another phase of the earth. They can't get back to their own age in modern times. They're just stuck in a time warp. It just happens over and over and over again. Another one of the Twilight episodes that I really liked was, <laughs> was a ship. It was an ocean liner, uh, and it had a Nazi agent on board, and it kept repeating the same seen over and over in this show. Uh, They're stuck in a loop. It's called The Passage on the Lady Anne. The Lady Anne was the ship. And certain events happen on that ship and people say, wait, it seems like that's already happened once. And they go through that series of events and then it gets to a certain point and they go right back where they started from and they relive those same moments over and over again and go back, trip the trigger, do the same thing over and over. They can't escape. The show ends. They're trying to figure out how to escape. They finally become aware we're stuck in this loop. And the show ends, as Twilight Zone often does, <laughs> with them stuck in that loop. They can't get out of it. Have you ever experienced what they call deja vu? Something happens and you say, seems like that's happened before. I remember that happening before. But that just happens in a little flash of time. But what Solomon's experiencing, and he thinks life is, is that we start over here, we live till we get over there, and then it just all starts over again. Some other generation comes along and we all end up at the same place. Nothing real to get excited about in life. Life is dull, monotonous, hopeless, and we can't control anything. That's what Solomon's saying. He's looking at life. Remember this. He's looking at life as a man living under the sun. He's appearing as a man on earth and there's nobody up above in control of anything. There's nobody up above that can change anything and so we're stuck here in this loop and we don't get to choose where we go and what we do and what we say and how life ends because it's all just man under the sun living life according to our own plans which ultimately fail every time that's what Solomon's seeing he's leaving God out of the equation at this point in his life life for Solomon, just seemed like a circuit, a loop going round and round. You ever see the It's a Wonderful Life about this time of year, Christmas time, It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart, and uh, he's George Bailey. And we've, we've seen that show at least a gazillion times, maybe a couple of gazillion times, and 
We watch it. And you know what? I've been seeing that movie now for, I guess, 40, 50, 60 years. I've been seeing that same movie. And it turns out the same way every time. <laughs> Nothing's changed. George Bailey still ends up at the same point of, of despair in his life. And at the very end, he finally finds true joy. And it always goes in a loop, round and round. Never changes. We'll watch it again this year as though we'd never seen it before. <laughs> Although we know exactly what's going to happen to George, <laughs> Christians don't have to live in a loop. Are you listening? Christians don't have to live in a loop where we're not in control of anything. We are simply pilgrims in this world, but we have another world above the sun that we're looking forward to. Solomon said, Nothing, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. You know, if you take the extreme view of Calvinism, the extreme Calvinists, some of them take this their theology to the point where Christians, you don't nobody has any control over their life. If you're not one of the elect, you couldn't get saved if you wanted to. And if you're one of the elect, you couldn't be lost if you wanted to. You're just a puppet, and God is the big puppet master. When you got up this morning and went through your ritual, you had no choice because God programmed you to do that. He's the puppet master, and you can't change anything. You're sitting here in this church this morning or watching online because you didn't have any choice. God is the main puppet master, and he's making you do all that stuff. I don't buy into that theology. I believe in a sovereign God who can do anything He wants to do, but He gives me the free will to make some choices. And I don't have to live in a loop where He's controlling everything that happens all the time and every generation is just born to die and nothing ever changes. God gives us choices. Solomon said nothing has changed and so therefore, number two, nothing is new. If nothing has changed, nothing is new. In verse number 8 through 11, notice with me, he says, all things are full of labor, man cannot utter it. He said, man, you can't even, you can't even talk about this with intelligence. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Do you see that in verse number 8? Man wants something new. It says in verse number 8, man is not satisfied. Always reaching for something new. Not satisfied. Folks who can't get satisfied are always looking. Got to have a new job. Got to have a new house. Got to move to a new state. Got to have a different spouse. Got to find a different church. Always something new because we think, because we haven't been fulfilled in the past, if we just keep on trying and reaching for something new, maybe something will bring satisfaction. Solomon said, I tried all that and none of it works. Nothing because there is a God-filled vacuum in the soul that is filled by nothing other than God Himself. And when we try to fulfill the craving that we have in our heart, that dissatisfaction that makes us always looking for something new, something new, something new, we have to form some kind of excitement, some sort of escape for ourselves. So we look for something new. He is the only one that can fill it. Man living under the sun, tries to fill that void, and he comes up empty every time.
time when we leave God out of the equation. Solomon then reasons the world provides nothing new. Verses 9 and 10. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And he that and and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. So what Solomon is saying at that point in his life, he's saying that <clears throat> there's no change, <clears throat> therefore there's nothing new. We want something new, but there is nothing new. He said, I've tried all of it, and there's not a single thing that's new. Everybody's already experienced it. Everybody's already experienced it. Well, now I would say that there are some things that's new. <laughs> my grandpa, Brooks, grew up, both my grandfathers grew up in the 1880s, or born in the 1880s. In their lifetime, my grandpa saw life riding in a buggy to church. And then the automobile was invented. And he drove his automobile instead of a horse-drawn wagon. Then he saw airplanes begin to fly in the sky. Those were not invented when he was born. <laughs> and I remember even as a kid, we used to, I'd be at my grandpa's house, and we'd walk out, when we hear a plane go over, we'd walk out and look at it. I mean, it was still, to, new, to us, it's pretty new. But that's not all what that same grand, grandfather of mine saw. He saw jet engines put on those planes, and those things go at supersonic speeds, faster than sound. That sounds pretty new. And in 1969, he saw, he saw a rocket ship go all the way to the moon, and men stepped off of it and walked on the surface of the moon. My grandpa didn't have his theology all straight. He said, well, this is it. He said, the Bible says somewhere that when there's blood on the moon, that's the end of the world. And he said, those men stepping on the moon, that put blood on the moon. <laughs> I, I don't agree with his theology exactly. I think there's some prophecy that would be a little more detailed and accurate than that. But I, what I'm saying is there, there have been some things that's new. But when we, as man under the sun, we try to create things and we try to look for things that's new that will fill the void in our heart without God. Without God, it is a futile experience because there's nobody that can actually create anything new but God. I mean, it's God who can make sinners into new creatures. A sinner becomes a brand new creation in Christ when they trust Jesus to save them. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It is when... They are saved that they can walk in newness of life in Romans chapter 6, verse number 4. And then they can sing a new song in Psalms 40, verse 3. They can enter into God's presence by a new and living way, Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 20. One day, those who are saved will even have a new heaven, new heaven and new earth. When God says, behold, I make all things new. God can make new things. You can't. I can't. When we're talking about something that satisfies the heart, there's nothing new that will satisfy the heart unless it comes from God. 
Then in verse number 11, Solomon addresses the issue of why we think things are new. <laughs> Look at it. This is kind of humorous, actually. Verse number 11, he says, There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. You know what he's saying? <laughs> the reason we think things are new is because we've got a short memory. <laughs> well, that may be true. Solomon said there's nothing that's been changed and nothing is new. And then lastly, he says nothing is even understood. We just can't grasp it. He becomes a philosopher now. And he tells us how he went about searching for this meaning of life. Solomon had all the resources to experiment with life. He had plenty of riches. He had plenty of people. He had the position and the power. He could experiment. So if there's anybody, listen, if there's anybody that you know that has tried a lot of stuff to find happiness in life apart from God, you don't know anybody probably on the level of Solomon. I mean, he had what we would say today is billions of dollars. He had the gold and the silver and the jewels. He had the palace in Jerusalem. He was the king and he could make the rules. Solomon had the wherewithal that he could experiment all he wanted to. So don't think you can outdo Solomon. You hadn't got that. If you've got that much money, I want to know your bank account number. <laughs> he had the resources. What had he tried? He says in chapter 2, verse number 1 through 3, he had tried all the pleasures that this world has to offer. And people today are looking all over the world trying to find some kind of pleasure through sexual addictions, drug addictions, Liquor addictions, having new things, trying to find something that satisfies. And friend, there is nothing apart from God. If you haven't got Him, there is no satisfaction. It'll be like that rabbit running in a circle. You come back to the brush pile and you're shot. Bang. It ain't going to work. Solomon said, I've tried all the physical pleasures. In chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, he said, I've tried all these great and costly works. He had built big ponds, fish ponds, and he had, he had big choirs of people, and he had tried everything. He'd done all these scientific experiments. He tried everything to bring entertainment to his soul by having great works. He said it didn't work. He had great possessions, chapter 2, verse 7 through 10. He had great possessions more than anybody around us would have. He had it all. I mean, he could buy anything he wants. He could have that and more. And he said it didn't work. Friends, there's, this world is full of people who think that they can just get a little more power and a little more money and a little more of this and a little more of that. Finally, they'll be satisfied. Solomon says, you'll never be satisfied apart from God. He said, I've tried it, friend. I've tried it, and if anybody could have success at it, I, Solomon, could have done it. But it didn't work. It's only God. He said, after all these things, he said, it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. Man living under the sun as though God didn't exist. Here are some of his tentative conclusions. In verse number 13 of our text, <clears throat> he's basically saying, although life is tough, it's a gift of God. You may be weary of your life, but let me tell you something. Listen to me. 
You may be tired of the life that you have, but I want you to know it's a gift from God. Whatever your life is, is a gift. It's up to you how you spend it. And then he says in verse 14, life doesn't get any easier when you try to run away from it. Verse number 14, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun and behold all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Some people just try to run from life. Run from their problems. You know, or ought to, that when you run from your problems, they're chained to you. They follow you wherever you go. You can't avoid those problems by neglecting them. And then in verse number 15, not everything can be changed. Verse number 15, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. There's some things in life you can't change. You may be weary of it. You may be tired of it. You may be sick of it. You may want to push it away. But there's some things you can't change. When our kids are little, we try to shape them and mold them to be what they ought to be. Mold some character into them. Mold some love for God into them. Mold into them some common sense. Mold into them some common courtesy, citizenship. We try to do that when they're little, but when they get grown, friend, you're not going to do a lot more with them. They're just going to be kind of where they are. They have a will of their own, and they'll do as they please. And sometimes you think you might be able to manipulate them and change them, but if you didn't do it the first 18 years, you're probably not going to have much success the rest of the time. I'm not saying don't, don't witness to them. I'm not saying don't give them advice. I'm just saying your best time is early in life, and the best change that you can bring about is not in somebody else, but in yourself. You can change you, but you can't change them. My wife and I have been married 47 years. I'm still working on her. (laughs) You know what I finally figured out? (laughs) She's who she is, and I enjoy life a lot more just letting her be who she is. And I change me. Sometimes I can change me when I depend on God. And I might pray for her, but I can't change her. Now, she turned out to be a pretty good woman after all. I'd marry her all over again. If I ever made one wise decision in my life, apart from that of being saved, it was marrying her. She's a jewel. But life doesn't get easier when you try to run away from your problems. You got marriage problems? Instead of running to the divorce court, instead of considering murder, (laughs) don't run from it. Fix it. Fix it. Sometimes we want to change things. Sometimes in my years of pastoring, I wanted to change people. But now in my later years, I figured out I'm not the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I can't do it. I can preach. And preach I will. 
God called me to preach and there's been times when I've preached and I thought, man, it's like bouncing off of a concrete wall. You know how you are. <laughs> when I was in Bible college studying pastoral theology, one of our requirements was turning three sermon outlines every week to be graded and to preach three times every week somewhere. We had to preach somewhere three times a week and give in a signed report verifying with our own honesty that we did it. I ended up, I preached in a few nursing homes and, and once in a while maybe you get a chance to preach in another church. It wasn't often because not a lot of churches looking for college students to come and preach to their people. You know where I got to preach a lot? Most of my preaching was done on street corners. That's what they wanted us to do. If you can't find some place to preach, preach on a street corner. I stood on street corners preaching my heart out with Bible in hand and people drive by and throw Coke bottles and beer cans and shaving cream at us. And I learned right then, my preaching doesn't depend on how they respond or how you respond. My preaching depends on the call of God on my life and therefore I'm going to keep on preaching no matter how people respond. And you know how you're supposed to respond to life? It doesn't matter how your spouse responds. It doesn't matter how your kids respond. It doesn't matter how your bank account responds. It doesn't matter about those things. What matters is that God's called you to live the life that He gave you as a gift. And you do it to the best of your ability. Amen. And if you're not pleased with it today, give it another whirl tomorrow. Life is not just a circuit that can't be changed. All the works that are done under the sun never truly satisfy the heart. It's finding God's will and staying smack dab in it. And if you fulfill God's will, you've been a success in life. You get to choose whether you fulfill His will or not. You can do like Solomon did for decades and say, I'm choosing my own way. I'm going my way. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care if I'm supposed to be in church. I don't care if I'm supposed to be a witness or, or read the Bible or pray. I'm, just, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do it my way. He'll let you. <laughs> but you'll have an empty place inside that will never be filled because you'll keep reaching for new things that won't satisfy. And until you come to the place where Solomon did, eventually he said, God, I've made a big mistake. I've tried to live life on my terms instead of yours. And I've been a big failure. Now, Lord, let me help somebody else by writing all this down so they don't have to make the mistakes I did. Not everything can be changed. You won't be happy if you think you have to change everything to fit you. You know why people are marching in Washington, D.C., and New York City, and places even around the world right now in support of Hamas? <laughs> They're trying to change things. But I'll tell you one thing they won't change. They won't change that Israel is God's people. <laughs> they can protest and holler and try to do it their way if they want to and they can cause misery for a lot of people. But they're going in circles because they're not doing it God's way. If you go through life living on explanations, see Solomon said here, I couldn't understand it all. 
Why didn't God explain all this to me? And you find yourself asking why, why, why did my loved one die? Well, I can give you the short answer. It's because man's fallen creature and everybody's going to die. <laughs> you can say, why, why did my kids turn out the way they did? You can ask why, but everything doesn't have an answer. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, the secret things belongeth unto the Lord. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts, and His ways are higher than my ways. Same with you. And we can't understand everything. Everything can't be understood this side of heaven. And number two, if you're living by expectations and explanations, you'll never be happy because God doesn't owe you an explanation. He just doesn't. He's God. And he doesn't owe you an explanation. Some things can't be explained and you just have to learn to be content with it. That God's in control. How do we conclude all this? Well, it's not wrong to enjoy pleasurable things. Solomon had riches. and He had position and power. It's not wrong to have those things. It's not wrong if you have a nice house or a nice car. It's not wrong if you've got some money in the bank. I think people who are wise will save up some money. People who are wise will try to get out of debt and stay out of debt. It's not wrong to be prosperous. It's not wrong to have position or power. But it is wrong when you make those things your God. When those things become more important than God's will, you're going to come up empty every single time. When unbelievers think God's way of salvation can be replaced by entertainment and pleasure by just neglecting God and His Word, they will die and go to hell. And there's one thing that will never change once somebody goes to hell. One thing will never change. They'll never escape. The Bible says the fires of hell are eternal. Now, I know there's cults that teach that hell doesn't exist, but the Lord Jesus said it does. And I'll take His Word over theirs. Hell is eternal. And once somebody who rejects Christ for the final time and they die they will be in hell forever and ever. Conversely, if you accept Christ as Savior, you'll live eternally in heaven and you'll never, never perish. Ernest Hemingway was an archetype of this modern man that lives today. He filled many books with reflections of worldwide adventures. I mean, he went, he went to the Amazon and fished and off of the Florida Keys and fished for tarpon, those great big fish. He would go to Alaska and hunt bear. He would go to Spain and watch the bullfights. He had everything. He was a very popular writer. He was famous. He had it all, but he wasn't saved. He didn't have the Lord. He lived the fullest life imaginable under the sun without God. But his suicide note read this way. Life is just one blankety-blank thing after another. What's he saying? Hemingway killed himself because he said life is just repeats itself and it's just one problem after another and I'm sick of it and I'm going to escape. Well, he escaped life on earth for a life in hell.
if he didn't get saved. And from what I've read, it looks like he didn't. So whether a person has not yet been born again, or maybe you have been saved, and you just lost that quietness of soul, the peace and satisfaction and fulfillment that you once knew, because you're trying to live life on your terms instead of according to his will, you can know what Solomon finally learned. And it's kind of summed up in this hymn that we sing sometimes. Listen to this, and I'm done. All my life I had a longing for a drink from some clear spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his blood I now am saved. Feeding on the husk around me till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy. But the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Well of water, ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you'd bless us as we come to this invitation time. Lord, help us to consider in our own hearts, we who are saved, am I living life on your terms according to your will or am I doing things my way with little to no regard of what you want? Father, help us to search our own hearts. and Lord, if there be any way in us that's not pleasing to you, that you would expose that to us right now and that we would fall on your mercy and your grace and accept your will into our life. Father, if there's people who are lost, listening here or listening online that are not saved, I pray that they'd understand that life is meaningless. Life is a circular maze and life seems to have no purpose if they're living under the sun. But Lord, this life under the sun will come to an end and on earth they will eventually be forgotten. But Lord, if they let you write their names into the Lamb's book of life by being born again, by trusting Jesus as Savior, they'll never be forgotten. Their name will never be blotted out. I pray that you'd help them at this moment to trust what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary to pay for their sins with his own blood. That salvation that no one else can supply, only you, Lord, through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd bless us in the invitation. 